Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Fighting God, Black Theology. Of the figures in the 20th century that we've discussed so far, Martin Luther King Jr. is probably, from today's standpoint, the most famous. This very fame may have led some listeners to come to the podcast with a mistaken impression of how prominent a commitment to Christianity was in the Africana philosophy of this period. We have certainly covered clergymen other than King, such as Henry Highland Garnett, Alexander Crummel, and Henry McNeil Turner. And in the 19th century, non-clergy figures too brought a religious message. Just think of David Walker, Maria Stewart, or Frederick Douglass. As Chike and I discussed in episode 100, it's tempting to see socialism as eclipsing Christianity in the 20th century. It became the dominant framework, organizing the philosophy of individual thinkers as well as debates between thinkers and tendencies. If we look beyond King for religious leaders we've covered, the first figure who comes to mind is Malcolm X. But X only proves the point that Christianity receded in dominance, as he was himself such a prominent and harsh critic of that belief system, especially in the time he preached on behalf of the Nation of Islam. After he left the nation, he turned to Orthodox Islam, not Christianity, and also to socialism, which was important to understanding King's evolving thought as well. It would be odd, however, if Christianity were simply to drop out of our story completely, given its enduring significance up to the present day for African Americans as well as for people elsewhere in the African diaspora and in Africa itself. In this episode, Christianity will once again take center stage, brandished as so often before in the pursuit of liberation, but now under the remarkably different circumstances of the Black Power era. King may be the most famous of the thinkers we've covered from today's perspective, but that does not mean he was the most influential thinker in Africana thought during the time we are discussing, that is, the late 1960s and the early 1970s. On the contrary, as recent episodes should have made clear, Malcolm was by far the more constant source of inspiration for thinkers of prominence during this period, the period during which King was killed. The question before us then is, what happens to Black Christian thought as King dies and as Malcolm's influence increases? If the Black arts movement was the artistic complement of Black power, we can classify Black theology, or as it is also called, Black liberation theology, as a complement in the sphere of Christianity. At the core of Black theology was a bold attempt to reframe this faith as part and parcel of the ongoing struggle for Black liberation. To put it in the stark terms used by some in the movement, Christ, the Messiah, is black. The idea here was not completely new, of course. Even back in the 19th century, we encountered Henry McNeil Turner proclaiming, God is a Negro. Marcus Garvey likewise argued, it is human to see everything through one's own spectacles, and since the white people have seen their God through white spectacles, we shall worship him through the spectacles of Ethiopia. Reminding us that Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois often had shared interests despite their mutual antagonism, Du Bois's 1920 book, Dark Water, contains multiple poems and short stories featuring the idea of a black god or a black messiah. What emerged in the late 1960s was distinctive, though. For one thing, black theology in that time was not simply a dimension of the thought of leading activists, but rather an eruption within theology itself as an academic discipline. Central figures in the emergence of black theology were trained theologians and university professors. Indeed, the term is associated above all with the work of James Cone, 
arguably the most important professional theologian in African-American history. Dedicated listeners may remember him as the scholar we drew upon heavily when considering the last years of King and X. There, we were using Cohn's work from the 1990s, by which time he could critically reflect back on the 1960s. The time has now come to explore how and why, in the late 1960s, Cohn came to believe and to argue at length that the Bible and Black power were in perfect harmony. It is possible, however, to place the beginning of the movement still earlier. Way back in 1953, Albert Clegg Jr. followed in the footsteps of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones by leading a number of congregants in the Presbyterian church that he had been pastoring out of the denomination in order to attain greater independence. The new church he created was for a long time known as the Central Congregational Church, but in 1967, Clegg rededicated it under a provocatively different new name. This name was connected to the 18-foot painting by Glanton Dowdell that Clegg unveiled on Easter Sunday that year, featuring a dark-skinned Mary holding a dark-skinned baby Jesus. Thus the church's new name, the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Clegg emerged early on in the Black Power era as a militant nationalist, critical of the project of integration. He began to argue that Christ must be seen as the non-white leader of a non-white people struggling for national liberation against the rule of a white nation, Rome. That Resurrection Sunday in 1967 marked a new phase of promoting what Clegg proudly called Black Christian nationalism. The summer brought a different kind of response to Black oppression, the Detroit Riot of 1967, the largest and bloodiest riot of a long, hot summer full of riots. These very riots were key to the intellectual development of James Cone. As he explains in the autobiographical opening to his 1975 book, God of the Oppressed, Cone was filled with feelings of dread and absurdity when the unrest broke out in Detroit, not far from where he was living in Michigan. Originally, Cone hailed from Arkansas, where he had become a minister at the tender age of 16. Already then, he instinctively rebelled against the way that the supposedly nice Christians of his hometown put black people in their place, a place that was, he said, defined by white reality. His deep study of Karl Barth and Paul Tillich would influence his own theology, yet left him unsatisfied. These authors, Cohn felt, inevitably approached Christianity from a white perspective and made the methods of theology into white tools. As he struggled to make Christian theology relevant to black students at a college in Little Rock, he started to form the idea of approaching theology from a distinctively black point of view. It was while pondering the meaning of the Detroit riot that he came to some conclusions. These were set down in his incendiary book, Black Theology and Black Power, published in 1969. The following year, he published A Black Theology of Liberation, further expanding on his thoughts in the previous book. It's worth noting that just after this, in 1971, the Peruvian thinker Gustavo Gutierrez published his book, A Theology of Liberation. This has resulted in the label liberation theology, often being associated especially with Latin America. It is clear, however, that Cohn and Gutierrez, among others, simultaneously worked on the idea of a liberation theology in the 1960s. In Black Theology and Black Power, Cohn expresses solidarity with the rioters, saying that their willingness to risk their own lives expressed hope not in white people, but in their own dignity grounded in God himself. He hails Black Power as nothing less than the most important development in American life in this century, and embraces the goal articulated by Amiri Baraka, the Black man should aid in the destruction of America as he knows it. Later in the book, Cohn writes that, the purpose of Black theology is to analyze the nature of the Christian faith 
in such a way that Black people can say yes to Blackness and no to whiteness and mean it. He describes the project as nationalistic and takes up the usual Black power criticisms of integration and its hero, Martin Luther King. King's popularity among whites was, for Cohn, due to the fact that his approach was the least threatening to the white power structure. For Cohn, the meaning of Christianity itself lies in God's support of the downtrodden and the suffering. This is why God incarnated himself as Jesus, who was Jewish and among the oppressed of his particular context 2,000 years ago. Transposing this to 20th century America, Cohn agrees with Clegg that now Christ can be understood as black in the sense that God must be working within the world towards the cause of black liberation, just as he once worked towards Jewish liberation. Thus, as Cohn puts it, black power is God's new way of acting in America. There are some obvious objections to Cohn's interpretation of Christianity, and he anticipates and answers a number of them. The first might be, what happened to turning the other cheek? How can a Christian theologian lend support to rioting and the general embrace of violence so commonly associated with the Black Power movement? Cohn's answer is similar to like-minded writers on the secular side of that movement. America is already violent, so nonviolence is not an option. As he would later write in God of the Oppressed, ours is a situation in which the only option we have is that of deciding whose violence we will support, that of the oppressors or the oppressed. Cohn stresses, however, that violence is a subordinate and relative question, more a matter of tactics than principle. He understands Christianity in terms of liberation, not pacifism. If Christ shunned violence when he was on earth, that doesn't mean he would do the same today. More revealing is Cohn's response to another objection that could be posed against him. Christianity is a world religion that promises salvation to all humankind, yet he reduces it to the relatively parochial concerns of the African-American community. On this point, Cohn freely admits that he sees Christianity through what Garvey called the spectacles of Ethiopia. Cohn thinks that this is inevitable, as there is no universalism that is not particular. My identity with blackness, writes Cohn, and what it means for millions living in a white world controls the investigation. It is impossible for me to surrender this basic reality for a higher, more universal reality. Therefore, if a higher ultimate reality is to have meaning, it must relate to the very essence of blackness. The problem is rather with white theologians who pretend to be taking a universal point of view, but in fact are adopting the perspective of the dominant white majority. As Cohn observes, saying that Christ is above race usually means imagining him as white. To speak of a black messiah, as Clegg had done, is no less justifiable than depicting Christ with white skin and fair hair, which is common enough in American culture. Or rather, it is much more justifiable since for Cohn, it is evident that Christ would be on the side of the victimized blacks and not the victimizing whites. Notice, by the way, that Cohn's answers to these two challenges are similar. In both cases, he suggests that objections to his theology are motivated by self-interest. Of course white theologians are going to praise nonviolence and speak loftily of universal values, since doing so serves their interests, these being the interests of the status quo. They turn Christianity into an ideology for perpetuating oppression, whereas the true story of Christ was one of revolution. This position also allows Cohn to answer a concern voiced by black theologian Joseph Washington, who lamented in his 1964 book, Black Religion, that segregation had cut black Christians off from the authentic tradition of the church. Cohn reversed this logic. For him, it is white Christians who are not authentic because they are working against God's will, which is always on the side of the oppressed. 
but it was not only white theologians who criticized Cohn's approach. A more subtle version of the concern about violence was posed by J. Diotis Roberts, a black theologian who was far less militant than Cohn and Clegg. Cohn explained this by saying that Roberts was formed in the integration period, whereas he himself was inspired by black power. Indeed, Roberts was born in North Carolina in 1927, and so about a decade older than Cohn. In the 1950s, he wrote a PhD dissertation about Cambridge Platonism in Scotland, and was eventually made professor at Howard University, where he took part in the civil rights movement. Though Roberts was, by his own account, also touched by the ideas of black power, he centered his theology on the idea of reconciliation. For him, Christianity was a means by which black people could be reconciled with whites, or rather with all other people. Cohn's theology seemed antithetical to this apparently deeply Christian ideal. Again, Cohn rose to the challenge, saying, It is not the case that I have overlooked reconciliation, as Roberts implies, but rather that I refuse to let white people define its terms. For him, interracial fellowship should never be pursued at the cost of liberation for the black race. White people, in fact, have no role to play here. Not unlike Malcolm X once telling a well-meaning white girl that she could do nothing to aid in his struggle, Cohn says that, at most, whites can only leave blacks alone. He assumes that white Americans are so enslaved by their own racism that they can be expected to offer nothing but obstacles to black freedom. Indeed, Cohn associates whiteness with oppression to such an extent that he can imagine white people reconciling with blacks in only one way. They must become black themselves by thoroughly embracing the ideas of black theology. Thus, where Robert saw reconciliation in terms of bringing the races together and ending antagonism between them, Cohn says in the penultimate paragraph of Black Theology and Black Power that reconciliation makes us all black. We want now to consider one more challenge to Cohn's theology, one that has the most obvious connections to traditional philosophy of religion, since it is a version of the famous problem of evil. In the most straightforward version of the problem, it is argued that the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and benevolent God is inconsistent with the existence of evil and suffering. Since evil and suffering obviously do exist, God doesn't. According to another version, the existence of suffering and evil constitute strong evidence against the existence of God, though they may not definitively prove that he does not exist. This is more or less the line of thought put forward in a 1973 book by William R. Jones, which bears the intentionally provocative title, Is God a White Racist? Jones studied philosophy at Howard in the 1950s, and went on to gain a Master's of Divinity at Harvard and a PhD in Religious Studies from Brown University, but these degrees did not mean he had left philosophy behind. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on the relationship between Jean-Paul Sartre's ethics and his philosophical anthropology. Jones was furthermore deeply involved in early efforts to organize African-American professional philosophers into a more visible force in the discipline. His essay, The Legitimacy and Necessity of Black Philosophy, Some Preliminary Considerations, published in 1977, is a classic example of a metaphilosophical reflection in the Africana tradition. In his earlier book, Is God a White Racist?, Jones engaged closely with the black theology of Cohn, Clegg, Roberts, and others. He raised the problem of black suffering as a challenge to black liberation theology. This on the grounds that the enormity and amount of such suffering constitutes strong evidence that if God indeed exists, then he has it in for black people. In the terms of the traditional problem of evil, the conclusion would be that if an all-powerful and all-knowing God exists, then he is evidently not benevolent, unless you're white, that is. While this may sound almost satirical, 
Jones's argument is mounted with seriousness and rigor. A fundamental assumption that drives his analysis is borrowed from Sartre's existentialism. For Sartre, man is the sum of his acts. Likewise, for Jones, God's character would be shown by the sum of his acts in history. It's as if Jones says to Cohn, you say that God acts in the world. Fine then, let us look to the historical record to see whether the God you believe in is indeed working towards the liberation of black people, or whether his track record instead suggests that he is a racist, assuming he in fact exists. The terms of the question were, as Jones pointed out, set by Cohn himself, who once said that a divinity who did not identify with the oppressed would be a god of racism, and at another point proclaimed, blacks want to know whose side God is on. Of course, Cohn and other black theologians were far from being insensitive to present-day black suffering, but they felt certain of future deliverance from that suffering. Faced with this optimistic proposal, Jones repeats that we can determine God's will only by looking to what he has done so far. He's given us no reason to trust that he is aiming to liberate blacks as his chosen people. To the contrary, they have endured centuries of misery and oppression, which is still ongoing. If God really wills liberation, then what is he waiting for? There's also a brief cameo here for an idea we looked at ages ago in episode 17 of this series. Jones invokes John Mbiti's idea that in traditional African cultures, there is little or no conception of a distant future, asking us to consider whether a Christian investment in an eschatological event yet to come may be a case where the religion of the slave master has unfortunately usurped the more realistic worldview of our African ancestors. It might seem that an easy rebuttal is available, it isn't God who is a white racist, it's white people who are racist, and they are exercising their free will to inflict suffering on black people. But this response isn't one that Cohn could easily make. His God is one who intervenes in history, indeed, one who is going to intervene and destroy white races and their power. Jones saw this as little more than a reversal of roles, in which by divine fiat, suffering would be shifted from one race to the other. But his main point was that Cohn really had no reason to believe it would happen. Rather than beginning with the problem of suffering and its origin and thinking about what kind of God would allow it, Cohn and other theologians simply assumed a benevolent God and interpreted the world in light of that assumption, flying in the face of all the available evidence. In the concluding chapter of Is God a White Racist?, Jones argues that if one does not choose the path of secular humanism, as he himself does, then the most promising theistic response to the problem of evil, as black theology faces it, is to accept what he calls humanocentric theism. This view meets the challenge of denying divine racism by removing God's overruling sovereignty from human history, making human activity co-equal with God's activity in human matters. Interestingly, when Cohn chose to respond to Jones's argument, he more or less admitted that he was indeed simply assuming faith in a good and liberatory God. The very notion that God could be a racist is absurd from a biblical point of view, he wrote, because the God we find in the Bible is one who is on the side of the oppressed. Cohn's theology is rooted in a faith tradition, and in a reading of scripture, not in inferences drawn from historical events, as Jones would prefer. This may seem like a pretty feeble response. One worries that it boils down to saying, I know that God isn't a white racist because I have faith that he isn't. But here we might recall Cohn's response to the earlier challenge about universality. In that case, he admitted that his theology is one born from a distinctively black perspective on Christianity and its meaning. Indeed, he denied that anyone can develop a theology that does not emerge from some perspective. So here, against Jones, 
Cohn could say that his own perspective is one that begins from Black religious experience, which includes an appreciation of Christ as a liberatory figure. If this seems ultimately to be a statement of faith rather than a philosophical argument, Cohn is fine with that. He says that, in responding to Jones, Christian theologians have to admit that their logic is not the same as other forms of rational discourse. And he is in any case suspicious of appeals to rationality or the deployment of philosophical argumentation within the context of Christian belief. These are usually, yet again, an excuse to interpret Christianity in a way convenient for the oppressor. Thus, he sketches the theory of sin and redemption offered by the medieval theologian Anselm, and dismissively remarks that it is a neat rational theory, but useless when it comes to combating political oppression. The same goes for the problem of suffering that is at the center of Jones's argument. Theologians are to blame when they make the problem of evil a matter of intellectual theory and suggest solutions that have nothing to do with the liberation of the poor from bondage. We might then say on Cohn's behalf that if we focus on liberation as the goal, it is better to believe in a benevolent God than a racist one. This in itself is reason to adopt that belief. Both Cohn and Jones admit, if only in passing, that their outlooks could be adapted for other times and places. Thus Jones says that the evidence of suffering could show God to be not only a racist, who hates black people, but also prejudiced against other oppressed groups. The evidence seems to suggest that if God exists, then he must be sexist and homophobic too. As for Cohn, he allows that just as Christ was once Jewish and is now black, he might stand for another oppressed group in the future. But, as the impact of black theology was soon to show, its approach could certainly be applied to other places in the same time. Its ideas were taken up in other countries, notably South Africa. James Cone was directly relevant here. At one significant early event, a theological seminar held at Rudeport in 1971, a recording of Cone reading his work was played out on a tape recorder. And if you don't know what that is, kids, ask your parents. Cohn's words fell upon fertile soil. Already in 1968, the South African Council of Churches had issued a message to the people of South Africa rejecting apartheid on biblical grounds. Thus, one year before Cohn's first book on black theology, there was already a precedent in South Africa for rooting the struggle against racial oppression within Christianity. One man who pursued this idea was Steve Biko, who we'll be covering later on in detail. His short essay, Black Consciousness and the Quest for a True Humanity, published in 1972, includes a passage specifically devoted to black theology. Biko sounds much like Cone as he says that Christianity, like any universal truth, seeks to find application within a particular situation. Black theology is just such an application which wants to describe Christ as a fighting God and not a passive God who allows a lie to exist unchallenged. It grapples with existential problems and does not claim to be a theology of absolutes. It seeks to bring back God to the black man and to the truth and reality of his situation. But as in the United States, so in South Africa, there was critical opposition to black theology. Alan Bursak, an important churchman and anti-apartheid activist who would eventually become president of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, was critical of Cohn in particular. Though he agreed that Christianity has the purpose of liberation, he thought Cohn's interpretation of that purpose was too parochial. Cohn's mistake, wrote Bosak, is that he has taken black theology out of the framework of the theology of liberation, thereby making his own situation, being black in America, and his own movement, liberation from white racism, the ultimate criterion for all theology. 
tension was also seen to exist between black theology and the already established approach to Christian thought that sometimes goes under the name African theology. This point was made especially by the South African church leader Manas Buthelezi, a first cousin to the more well-known and controversial political figure Mangusutu Buthelezi. Here, African theology refers to a form of Christianity that is rooted in and even seen as the fulfillment of traditional African religious beliefs, the kind of beliefs we covered in the first part of this podcast series when looking at philosophy and oral traditions. In fact, a couple of names familiar from those older episodes crop up here. As we saw, several pioneers of African philosophy were Christian missionaries. One of them was Placide Temples, who said in his book Bantu Philosophy that, Christianity is the only possible consummation of the Bantu ideal. And, popping up for the second time in this episode, there was John Mbiti. He was active in the 1970s and took a keen interest in the clash between African theology and Black theology. He sided with the former, writing, The concerns of Black theology differ considerably from those of African theology. African theology grows out of our joy in the experience of the Christian faith, whereas Black theology emerges from the pains of oppression. African theology is not so restricted in its concerns, nor does it have an ideology to propagate. Black theology hardly knows the situation of Christian living in Africa, and therefore its direct relevance for Africa is either non-existent or only accidental. While Mbiti and others like him therefore saw a great gulf between African theology and Black theology, others argued that a bridge could be built between the two camps. It should come as no surprise that prominent among those others was Desmond Tutu, as South Africa was, as we have seen, a hotbed of black theology in Africa. Meanwhile, back in the United States, another group of authors sought to adapt the tools of black theology for a distinct purpose. These were black womanist theologians who critiqued the male purveyors of black theology for overlooking gender oppression. This challenge was first issued by Jacqueline Grant in her 1979 article, Black Theology and the Black Woman. Picking up on a point we've seen made by other Africana feminists, Grant stressed the special situation of Black women as victims of oppression, and argued that no authentic theology of liberation could fail to address this issue. In due course, this feminist perspective on Black theology was combined with the concept of womanism, first introduced by the novelist Alice Walker. In a much-quoted passage from her book In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, she derived the new term womanist from a term in African-American English, womanish, which can be contrasted with girlish. Someone acting womanish is grown up, in charge, serious. By extension, Walker defined a womanist as committed to the survival of and wholeness of a whole people. Kicking off a long and ongoing debate about what it means to claim to be a womanist as well as or instead of being a feminist, Walker concluded, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Walker's idea was put to work in a theological context by such authors as Katie Cannon, and Kelly Brown Douglas. Cannon was the first to embrace the word womanist in this context, and she explored this approach by way of biblical exegesis, focusing on women characters in scripture. Meanwhile, in her book, The Black Christ, Douglas explained the womanist approach to black theology by saying that this approach is sensitive not just to oppression of black people by white people, the problem of concern to Cone and other male black theologians, but also to oppression within the black community. When black men oppress black women, or when black people are oppressed for their sexuality, this too must be resisted by a Christianity built around the concept of liberation. For Douglas, the goal of black theology should be, echoing Walker, to seek the wholeness of the black community, 
regardless of sex, class, sexual orientation, or any other kind of difference. So in the history of black theology, we see nuance and openness coming to qualify what had been, if you'll pardon the expression, a rather black and white approach to liberation theology. In the beginning was a word of protest against racial oppression in America. In the end, black theology was appropriated and put to work by feminists and by thinkers who lived in other countries. This is just one instance of a broader phenomenon. The secular black power movement too was exported to other nations. The insight here was tactical as well as philosophical. As the womanist thinker Dolores Williams said, black theology would benefit from a multi-dialogical intent in which bridges would be built to other communities. To his credit, James Cone responded to this challenge. He traveled to Ghana for the 1977 Pan-African Conference of Third World Theologians, where he argued for a rapprochement between black theology and African theology. He may have held that there is no universalism that is not particular, but his particular perspective came to accommodate a more global point of view. And the idea of a pan-African theology that resolutely combines the concerns of black theology and African theology was also defended thereafter by a younger African-American professional theologian, Josiah Ulysses Young III. Relevant to our general concern with intellectual traditions in this podcast, Young's 1992 book, A Pan-African Theology, Providence and the Legacies of the Ancestors, begins with extended philosophical engagements with two particular ancestors, Alexander Crummel and Edward Blyden, theosporic figures whose theology was shaped by their decision to go to Africa and become Liberians. We'll also be heading once again across the Atlantic in coming episodes. Most of our attention in the past few episodes has been on African-American thought, circling around the Black Power movement and its reverberations in political life, art, and now religion. In the next few episodes, by contrast, we will be focusing on Africa. We will say more about South Africa, introducing a figure you've most likely been waiting for, Nelson Mandela, and we'll also meet Amilcar Cabral, leader of a struggle for independence in Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, and a prominent socialist theoretician. We will be going first, however, to Tanzania, to meet Julius Nyerere, another Christian thinker, but also, very importantly, another theorist of African socialism, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>